The thing about comparing rates at Progressive.com is that by now you've heard a lot of ads about comparing rates at Progressive.com. We probably don't even need the words comparing rates anymore to remind you that seasoning steaks at Progressive.com is an easy way to save on car insurance. Or that swimming in trousers helps you find the lowest rate. And that's the thing about foraging for truffles. You've heard a lot of ads about standing tiptoe on a cinder block. Compare rates and <clears throat> sing softly to a wounded field mouse and save at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Hey, man, what's going on? Hey, Jay, what's up, man? You ready to talk movies? I'm ready to talk movies. Let's do it. Hello, and welcome to this week, or months, or bi-months, or bi-weekly, or week by installment of Fear and There, uh, your local homegrown our podcast. This is Zachary calling in from Columbus. And uh, hi there, I'm Jay. I'm calling in from New York City. It's really nice to meet you, Jay. I, uh, I've i been looking forward to getting to know you now for a while. Mm. Um, we've been friends for a long time, but we've never really met. So yeah. Uh, how are you? I, I'm great. I, I All I know is you're a disembodied voice that has very, mm. very strong opinions. So um, <laughs> I hope we can finally meet for the first time, perhaps at your wedding later this year. Oh, maybe, maybe. Or at the end of the movie when there's a great reveal and <laughs> and it, actually it's been me the whole time. <laughs> you pull off a mask Scooby-Doo style. Scooby-Doo style, that's right. So this week uh, or month, again, you know, this is not a regular thing. It's an irregular thing. But if you look at the the release dates of our of our episodes, it it does actually kind of shake out to I don't know a couple times a month. I would say we've got some kind of regularity. Yeah, I would say it's it's bi monthly. I mean, we released the first bunch batch of episodes kind of at once because we weren't sure what shape it was going to take. But um, since then, it's been about every two weeks. Yeah, yeah, and also you know, when you look at the uh, the data, um, we have some interesting. Uh, locations are are tuning in uh so this is a special hello to our i think we have a listener in ireland mm. Un, one we have, listener we have one listener in ireland we have one listener uh, where in south america we have one in perhaps in brazil is that right yeah i think there might be one or two in the philippines as well in the philippines that's right so a special hello to them mm. um everyone else who's listening in the states uh it's fine hi again i guess uh whatever <laughs> um <laughs> So uh, this week we're talking about an early film of a very big name director, Guillermo del Toro. Uh, we're talking about Devil's Backbone, um, and I think it's interesting for me. Uh, I- I'm a fan of del Toro, um, and so one of the things that I think is going to be interesting to talk to you about, Jay, is you know how you see this movie, how you saw this movie in the context of Del Toro's filmography. Uh, you know, he's an Academy-winning director. He's a massive name. He's almost an institution in and of itself. It seems yeah. like he knows he knows all of the other Spanish-language directors. Um, if you, you know, he's a good guy to follow on Twitter because he really does seem to be a friend of every filmmaker, of every budding filmmaker, especially Spanish-language filmmakers. It's also, this film is also marks our first... Uh, uh, international film 
viewing. Um, mm-hmm. And so one of the questions that I want to ask you, and I, I guess we could really jump right in. I don't, I don't, you know, I think we're a little bit off from the spoiler wall, but I can jump right in. I mean, what, what is it like for you? We tend to start these podcasts talking about how we viewed a movie, you know, the actual physicality of where you were in the room, what room, how dark it was and so on. But I'm interested to know how watching a horror movie or ostensibly a horror movie uh, with subtitles uh, changed your viewing experience? That's a great question. And I think it's a, it's a very poignant question in, um, in a world after Parasite has won Best Picture. Mm. Um, also Best Director, also Best Foreign <laughs> Film, also Best Screenplay. Um, so I think, so Bong Joon-ho has a great quote about this um, and I want to see if I can find it quickly without, um, w- without taking too much time. But I think he said this. Um, he said this at like the Golden Globes or something. Mm. Um, it was at some prior award show when it was still up in the air as to whether he was gonna win much at the Oscars. I think it was obvious that that Parasite was gonna win international film. Um, mm, right, but. He has the. This is his quote, and I'm reading it from Reddit. So, uh, thank you to <laughs> you slash Yager, bro. Um, mm. <laughs> what a nice guy. <laughs> yeah, Yager, yeah. bro, sixty eight. So, uh, what he said when he got on stage is part of his speech. He said, "Once you overcome the one inch tall barrier of subtitles, you will be introduced <laughs> to so many more amazing films." So, I, I think he's got a sense of humor about it. Obviously, he's you know he's sort of taking a jab, but anybody. Anybody in in the filmmaking world knows, for better or worse, that Hollywood is, at least in percentage alone, the center of the, the film world. And sure. outside of Cannes Film Festival and maybe, I guess, Toronto, there just aren't big, splashy festivals or award shows or anything outside of the English-speaking world. Um, and... By the way, calling something an international film but not allowing something from Ireland because it's in English is also right. weird too. So it's kind of this yeah. it's the sort of thing that's like that like to to answer your question, I think I love foreign films and will be the first to admit that I need to set aside the right mood to watch them. Sure. So, okay, sure. So I, I think I've gotten a lot over that in the past and um Honestly, full disclosure, when I'm in New York, it's so noisy outside, um, I watch everything with subtitles turned on. Yeah, uh, right, right. Just because like, I don't want a train to go by or something and have me miss a line in Billions. Billions is what I'm watching right now, by the way. Um, billions. Yeah, yeah, it's a Showtime show. Uh, so it's got Paul Giamatti. I think you should watch it. Uh, maybe oh. watch one episode just to see Paul Giamatti in BDSM attire because his character... Hmm really really likes uh bdsm anyway um so (laughs) yeah so i think like for horror it's different so one thing that impressed me so much about parasite and i wouldn't put parasite in the horror category but definitely thriller um sure i mean they're they're they're, it definitely draws on the genre Uh, you 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 could argue yeah for sure um but i think one thing that impressed me about parasite is when you go into a foreign film with subtitles is uh you you kind of expect the acting to not translate you know what i mean like Hmm. you expect the writing to maybe sort of translate but really you're you're in it for plot 
and cinematography and music and those sorts of things. But you, you know, a lot of times you can't really be in it for comedic timing. You can't be really uh-huh. be in it for, you know, the delivery of a line. So, sure. and, and, and I would imagine of course that there are some cultural, um, like specific cultural, I don't know, some specific cultural comedy that wouldn't translate so well. So you would have, sure. you'd have jokes that might go over your head. Yeah. And, and yeah, totally. And I think parasite, was very impressive in that all the comedic timing works, or at least a significant amount that I find the movie funny, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that movie, obviously, like, I don't need to harp on that. Everybody knows it's a great movie. It just won Best Picture. But um, when I was going into this movie, which perhaps a better comparison is uh, Del Toro's next movie, the one right after this, which is his most critically acclaimed, maybe? Um which was, it was Pan's Labyrinth that he did right after, right? Mm-hmm. So, right. and and honestly, like stylistically, these movies have a lot in common, even if thematically they don't have a lot in common. Um, mm. They, I, I think, his movies. There's something about the way that he writes dialogue and the way that he shoots his movies. Right, right, that right. You're brought into a whole different world. Then I, it's hard to. It's like this is a Del Toro movie. It's not a foreign movie to me you know like sure sure i know what you mean he he has kind of a visual language of his own that that i don't know is is the best in every scenario you know sometimes it can be really campy and silly um but it is his language and it sort of helps to bolster the fact that you're reading dialogue so um yeah and this movie, frankly, I don't think the lighting really matters. Like, you know, the the context in which you're watching this movie, I don't think it matters um, that if you don't watch it in the dark or something, because this movie is one of those like daytime horror movies. It's in the middle of the desert. Right. Um, right. And so right. I, they're very right. There are very limited uh, scenes in specifically in the, you know, the basement where there's the water tank that we'll get into. We'll, yeah. we'll discuss that. But yeah, but that's essentially the only time. And there are a few nighttime scenes. There's one early on nighttime scene, which, which is, uh, you know, which plays with the atmosphere quite a lot. But you're right. You're right. It's very much a daytime horror movie. It doesn't. Um, I mean, I watched it for what it's worth. I watched it during the day, um, mm-hmm. and and I and I don't think it would have changed my experience of the film too much if I'd watched it at night either. I think it was sort right. of the same either way. Yeah, I watched it like at twilight and. Um I did have to put my glasses on halfway through because, you know, I require, <laughs> I have a very mild pres- uh, prescription for seeing while I'm driving, and I used to use it for seeing the board in college and stuff, um, so I don't need <laughs> to wear my glasses unless I need to read things at that exact distance, and so... But you were, and so you were driving and you watched the movie yeah, while yeah. you were driving yep. is my <laughs> takeaway here. <laughs> no, so I, you know, I like... I could read the subtitles without, but it made it easier. So sure. that, that was, I would say, the biggest effect, the subtitles. Once you get into the world, the <laughs> biggest enough. effect they had was I had to wear glasses. So <laughs> You had to wear glasses, right, right. Yeah. So um, I, I think you raised a few very interesting points. Um, one of the things that you said uh, that stuck with me is you mentioned, I'm not sure if this is exactly the word that you used or the, or the, phrase, the phrasing that you used, but, but Del Toro very much has a, a, a brand um, and you said, um, you know, you said this, his, obviously the next film that he does after this, as you said, was Pan's Labyrinth. Um, and one of the things you said that, that stuck with me is that you didn't think necessarily that they had some thematic, that they had plenty, you know, they had thematic similarities, but I, I want to, um, one of the things that I want to talk about actually is, 
del toro's uh like uh, like like his collection of obsessions kind of so i mm-hmm. I, I took a look at i mean I've seen a lot of his films. I've not seen all of his films. I haven't seen Kronos, which came, uh, which precedes this. I haven't seen um, Crimson Peak, uh, although it's been on my list for a long time. Um, so what? What three... have you seen by Del Toro? Just the three that I've seen. Then uh, I've seen. Obviously, I've seen this Pan's Labyrinth, Shape of Water. I saw Pacific Rim, uh, which he directed. Strangely. Um, I, and I've seen uh, both of his uh, Hellboy movies, but I haven't seen Chronos oh. or Mimic, uh, two of the uh, preceding films. Right. Okay. So. Oh. Uh, okay. I, so. So you did see the Hellboy movies, though. I saw the Hellboy's mo- Hellboy movies, which I remember really liking, but I haven't seen them in a long time. Um, I see. So. So I thought. So I was thinking. I was comparing this film as I was watching it. I was comparing it to Pan's Labyrinth, which is one of my favorite movies. Uh, just period. Um, and um, The Shape of Water, which is, I guess, the movie that's sort of most recently entrenched in my mind. Um, and it occurred to me that he very much, like, this is a filmmaker who is very interested in mythology, mm-hmm. in both, like, literal myth-making when it comes to, like, magic realism, uh, obviously ghosts in this, uh, the whole in Pan's Labyrinth, you know, the the fawn, the, the labyrinth, everything. The, the freaky monster with the eyes in his palm, which is my favorite thing in the world. Yeah, it's a, it's uh, and then fucking, The Shape of Water. It's a fucking nightmare. It's a nightmare. And the, the monster design, as with the Hellboy movies, is just unparalleled. <laughs> I, I love it. But so so with the myth making, you know, when you talk about myths and you talk about like actual like like classics, you deal at your essence, at the essence with with archetype. Um and one of the things that I was struck by watching this movie uh, as a precursor directly to Pan's Labyrinth, but also just as an earlier film in his oeuvre, is his like sort of neat assemblage of characters that fall into like the heavy villain type, who like in this movie is Jacinto, uh, the the guy who who grew up in the orphanage and then grows up to be a real you know piece of shit. Uh, Michael Shannon in Shape of Water, who plays it, you know, mm. in like a madcap villainy, and uh, the actor Sergi Lopez as the general in the labyrinth. And then you have the innocents represented uh, as Ophelia in Pan's Labyrinth, Sally Hawkins. Uh, I don't remember her character in Shape of Water, and then Carlos, of course, our our boy protagonist in Devil's Backbone. And then lastly, you have like the complex shades of gray. Can't tell if they're good. Can't tell if they're evil. Like the fawn in the labyrinth, uh, in Pan's labyrinth, and and Jamie, you know, the boy who is sort of a bully at first, and then befriends Carlos in Devil's Backbone. And so, my my and question I, I would to say you, the doctor too in that case. Okay. Oh, in uh, in this film, right? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure. I mean, right. The, uh, the the caretakers of the orphanage are uh, their motivations. I suppose at times are murky. You don't mm-hmm. quite. Yeah. So, so my question to you is like, I don't know. I mean, what do you like? How does that sort of an open-ended question? If you'll bear with me, like, how does that inform your watching of his movies? And 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 this can be a broader question. That's like, like very simply, like, are you a fan of his movies? What do you like about them? Uh, you know, what is it about him that seems to you know to make him a world uh, and Del Toro? I mean, make him a world-class director, especially. Keeping in mind, like, this is a man who writes fairly simple scripts filled with stock characters, 
you know, who are who are often cast really well and are engaging actors, but but they're not complicated people. So I, mm-hmm. I wonder, like, how you respond to that, uh, if that's your, you know, if that was your uh, um, experience of, of watching the film. I don't know. Yeah. Talk a so little bit about you mean that. specifically like the mythology stuff that you just outlined? Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely keeping that in mind. I mean, I, there are other writers, there are other other screenwriters who who could who could very much inject these characters with with lives of their own that that don't sort of adhere to archetypical character arcs. Um, and I wonder, like, if it works for you as in terms of Del Toro's films, in terms of this film, maybe in particular, like, does it work that these are not exactly real people, that they're more like chess pieces? Yeah, that I kind see. of Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, it's an interesting point. I, obviously, I did not think about this on a conscious level. Um, I think, I mean, you can't watch Pan's Labyrinth and not think about the fantasy elements and the legend, right. legendary elements of it. Um, but you can, and I, I mean, I guess Pan's Labyrinth is about like a mutant alien fish sex thing. <laughs> right. Um, so you got to think about it from there. But this movie, other than the ghost concept, was very grounded in reality. But there is something about this space. I mean, there are a lot of biblical elements to this, right? Like this Sure. The whole movie takes place, with the exception of, I think, like one scene, the whole movie takes place in this orphanage that is in the middle of, like, the desert, like, right. nothing else around it. So I, you do feel off-kilter. You do feel like you're thrust into this world that's not real. There was something like, why was this orphanage so big and so vast and seemed so, like, grandiose in its architecture, yet mm. was so impoverished and in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I know it's kind of wartime, but, um, so I don't know that it affected me on a conscious level, but I definitely, this movie felt a little bit more focused on, uh, some, some sort of like Christian legends. I mean, Hmm. I, I mean, there's the, there's literally a crucifix being dragged through the halls in one of the scenes. Um, that giant Jesus statue that's bloody. Sure, sure, Um, sure. And, you know, this ghost boy, his name is Santi. So it's, it's, um, there were some parts of this that felt a little bit more Catholic than they felt. Yes. Yes. You know? So I think, um, I don't know. I, I, I definitely like started jotting down some thoughts as it related to that, but, I had a different um, a different common thread with Del Toro that I'd love to talk about later um, once we get past the spoiler wall. Um, sure, sure, and we can we can put that up shortly if you'd like. Sure, um, but yeah, I think like if, uh, yeah, I, I I think that the movie does touch on what you're saying. I just think this specific instance of the movie it feels simpler and less grandiose than yeah. I'm used right. to from from Del Toro, right, right. So, so the one thing I want to uh, uh, say uh, in in response to your comment is particularly about um, the uh, the Catholic motifs because I so I was not other than the thematic similarity between this and Pan's Labyrinth in that they both are films that take place during or closer to the end, uh, to my knowledge, of the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, that so so the moment you crack open the 
the literature about this movie, like, you know, the sort of the, the, the published criticism, if you don't have, like me, like if, like I, I have very little, I know like perhaps maybe like the skeletal outline of what the Spanish Civil War was about. It's definitely mm-hmm. a blind spot for me. But the moment you crack open the criticism of it, you realize, uh, you learn, or I learned, that that this is a movie that's actually laden with Spanish Civil War politic, with, you know, with symbolism yeah. directly related to the politics of the Spanish Civil War. So, so the so the Catholicism scene, uh, or the scene in which the kids are being punished by moving this massive crucifix and they're hanging up uh, uh, Christian uh, mementos on the or memor- memorabilia on the wall, iconography, whatever the word is. Um, with the Spanish Civil War, you you know you had like a an established republic that was being squashed by a kind of trifecta led by Franco, by a fascist dictator. Uh, who was also nominally Catholic. And so the idea that, like, they would be suddenly putting up these Catholic icons is a kind of, like, we need to... Like, the orphanage is now making a decision to hide themselves or to pretend to be Catholic. Um, And apparently, there's so much in this movie that's operating on a symbolic level uh, vis-a-vis the the Spanish Civil War. Uh, One filmmaker... Or one, sorry, one writer, I don't know, maybe it was A.O. Scott in the Times or it was Roger Ebert who was still alive... Uh, when this movie came out, was pointing out um, that, like, uh, you know, you essentially have a very symbolic thing where it's, like, a bunch of kids who are acting as Spain's kind of revolutionary heart are rising up against Jacinto and his cronies, which represent Franco's fascist government. Mm. And uh, so there's this whole subtext of stuff that went completely over my head. And even knowing it, I'm not sure, actually changed my kind of, like, retroactive viewing of it. Um well, but, I mean, and the the gold, yeah. the gold stuff, and uh, like sure. him him being singularly focused on um, just the profitability of his of his situation. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know anything right. about the Spanish Civil War, and I kind of liked that I didn't know anything about the Spanish Civil War. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so uh, it's interesting that you did some reading. I'd love to talk more about it um, once we can start spoiling things. Which I think we can do uh, right right about now. Why don't we Why don't we throw that wall up? Do you want to? Uh, I mean, I assume you recommend this, pre. Ah, okay. So let's. Yeah, sorry. Thanks for Thanks for bringing my attention back to that. Um. Uh, okay. Do we rec- Do I recommend this movie? Um. I uh, I recommend this movie as a uh, like for a Del Toro completionist. I I don't recommend it as a sort of standalone film um when you're in the mood for a horror movie um hmm. i um yeah i uh i'll have more to say about this once the wall is up the spoiler wall is up uh god forbid it's any other wall um <laughs> and uh <laughs> and um but no i i uh this to me is very much a a pan's labyrinth prototype um i that so many of the things in this movie are are repeated, you know, a handful of years later when he does Pan's Labyrinth. They begin the same way. They fe- they take place during the same same time period. They involve some of the same uh, visuals. Uh, you know, there's a man shaving and looking at a mirror. There's an amputee. There, you know, there's a kid in the back of a car going to a strange place while there's a voiceover talking about something in really mythological uh, terms. You know, there's to me this is like like. Like with Baumbach, like we were talking about him earlier, you have the squid and the whale, and then years later you have the Meyerowitz stories, and they're like, mm. they they 
So anyway, yeah. So I know I don't particularly recommend this movie. I, I enjoyed it for what it was, but I there are other better movies. Okay, so you see. don't you don't consider it essential viewing? No. What about you? Um, yeah, I recommend it. I liked it. I, it's interesting that you the Pan's Labyrinth comparative uh, comparison is virtually inescapable. Um, it is. I mean, it is a movie that takes place in this during the the Spanish Civil War by del toro so it it was it was almost like this movie was his first try um right he got some success with it but not really any not much financial success um to as far as i know and he was almost like okay cool so there is a, a market for this but let me do it bigger and better and with more money you know um right right and so yeah i i would recommend it but it's also a good point that I, in in so much as <clears throat> Del Toro ever is true horror, I think this is him trying to be the most horror outside of Crimson Peak. I would argue, um, because Pan's Labyrinth is kind of horror fantasy, um, mm-hmm. and like, yeah, I don't know if if you want a Spanish language horror film that is truly scary. I would recommend The Orphanage over this one. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But this one, I thought it was a great film, and I was, I, I, you know, I loved it, and I was a little spooked out a couple of times. Um, but, I, I mean, I would definitely recommend it, um, but definitely not if you're looking for, a, like, a really scary movie. Sure, right, right, right. All right, good. So, yeah, let's put down the wall, and uh, let's talk a little bit more about scariness. <laughs> All right, the wall's going down now. Cool. And and there there it goes. The wall's down. Mm-hmm. We're on the other side of it. <laughs> How's it feel? Eerie over here. How's Scary. I don't know. It's terrifying over here. <laughs> I feel like we're like telling the future of the movie every time we put it up. You know? Right, right, like, right. It's right. a little bit of a time travel device. So um so the rum, <laughs> the rum is the most disgusting thing uh, Just that I've that I've seen on my on my TV screen in a long time. Yeah. So for those who haven't seen the movie and you're weird for listening to a podcast, <laughs> but uh, the caretaker doctor head of this orphanage thing, he is you know he's a doctor and a scientist, and he um, stores these dead preserved fetuses with different medical ailments one of them being the devil's backbone which we will talk about i'm sure um but he stores them in this sort of like formaldehyde rum solution um and it's yellow and it's uh looks a little like urine and he uh, apparently it has sort of like folkloric medicine qualities um medicinal qualities and he sells it in town and that's how the orphanage has been getting most of its money um, right and yeah i i don't really know the symbolism of this was strange i mean it was obviously like the beginning when he's taught when they're talking about that there's that whole monologue about the voiceover monologue you mentioned about right which is his voice the doctor's voice mm-hmm, about what a ghost is and one of the comparisons they make is an insect trapped in amber which i like the this solution is almost amber but i i kind of felt like i can't right. i can't get away from the fact that they were just quoting jurassic park <laughs> i felt the same thing and <laughs> and he even um uh, dr caceres uh, his uh 
uh, let's see, Fre- uh, Frederico Lupi. He even looks like um, like um, like Attenborough, yeah. who plays. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's it that, was it know, was uh, a deranged dinosaurless <laughs> Jurassic Park. <laughs> it's true. I had the same thought, but so I, I mean, I agree with you. The uh, the the, the the amber colored rum liquid fetus fetus alcohol drink. Uh, my only take on it is that it's supposed to because the the monologue when we're introduced to this disgusting beverage, uh, he's talking to Carlos who's just gotten into some trouble for I don't remember exactly what at that point in the film, but he's he's telling him all about this rum this concoction, uh, you know, and he's saying it he's describing it as like as you said really nicely you know this is this has some sort of medicinal property if you believe in that kind of shit you know he says it really derisively he says look you know look at my walls I'm a man of science you know and and he so he doesn't believe in ghosts he doesn't believe in fantasies you know he certainly doesn't believe in like the new age mumbo jumbo of like drinking the sure. rum you know sloshed around a fetus uh, and, and then and then Carlos leaves and he's alone with the rum. And he and he takes a shot of it. So to Oof, me, really gross, the t- disgusting. Just really one of the most visually appealing uh, things in the film, and also, of course, one of the most visually grotesque things in the film. I absolutely loved the idea of it, and I hated that I was watching it. Um, but to me, I don't know. My takeaway is like, you know, the theme of reality versus fantasy and not knowing exactly what's real and what is make-believe and then what is actual magic. You know, Del Toro continues that in Pan's Labyrinth. To me, that this is kind of the start of that idea of, like, kids believe in ghosts, but adults believe in science kind so, of thing. So I, I but do, actually, I, you know... I have a question about that because um, do you think... This is actually, I think, one of my central questions from the movie. Um do you think that the adults don't see uh, Santi? Right, it's a good question. I we're not given a, a, an any kind of explicit answer, um, and that yeah, I mean, my guess is that they, like, you know, I don't know. I, it could just be like a. Uh, like, kids don't understand the actual implications of the Spanish Civil War. They're just kids. They have the perspective of kids, which is to say it's very limited and it's ignorant. And so their imagination runs wild and they can deal with ghosts. And adults have real-world problems to deal with. And so they deal with real-world problems and mm. they don't have time for ghosts. But, I, I mean, I don't know. I um... Maybe the opposite, though. Maybe the, the children don't understand the real-world conflict to the fullest extent of their ability. Like... In the middle of this courtyard is a a bomb, yeah. and the kids like kind of toy with it, and you know right. Jaime, like you said, he he knocks. He's like he's like don't mess with that. It's ticking. It's alive. But then right. you know Carlos, our what did you call him? Our boy protagonist. Um, yeah, he spends the whole movie knocking on it. So they're kind of flaunting the concept of war. They don't understand how dire their situation actually is. Um, right, but their version of playing the conflict is they have this inner, this, this like something is wrong with the sanctuary. There is a ghost in the sanctuary that is right. You know, needs to be put to rest and they need to figure out what to do with him. Um, and so, I mean, it's interesting that you say like kids can deal with ghosts, but the adults have to deal with real things. I see it as like the adults keep dealing with real things and they're not paying attention to this. Uh, thing. So sure, sure, you, know, sure. you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, 
Um, I don't know. That's interesting. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I would have to think back on it, but or I have to probably rewatch the film, uh, frankly. But just kind of just like Payne's Labyrinth Theory is a very easy read of the film that says, or a very sort of apparent read or you know whatever available read of the film that says that uh, actually the involvement of the central ghost apparition fantasy element is in the end irrelevant to the plot that with or without the presence of the ghost the the movie progresses in the same fashion you know the the, the events of the story progress in the same fashion you know it, they, it's, it's true like the ghost got way less scarier when the stakes started to get higher and higher right and, and you take you know take the end of the film uh in which the ghost uh, of santi says to carlos who and carlos is is like the interlocutor the little liaison for for santi the ghost to the rest of the kids he says bring me uh jacinto jacinto you know the bad guy who killed me um you want to briefly recap those circumstances just um because it's the night of the bomb so it's like the bomb dropping and uh santi getting killed are the two catalyst moments for at least jaime of sort of like turning into this ambiguous gray villain character that you talked about um right so yeah i just feel like you're you're right i just like the the instance i just like the the santi dying he's down with jaime who you learned was his friend and jacinto comes down um after they see him toying with the safe that has all the gold in it because jacinto wants the gold and then uh Jacinto just pushes him too hard, pushes Santi too hard, and he hits his head on a on a pillar and loses a lot of blood. And so Jacinto freaks out, ties him up, throws him into this big uh, water water pool thing, um, and yeah, kills him. Yeah, good. yeah. and so right. that's yeah. So and that is the same night. And when when Jaime is down there, he's hiding and he sees all this, and then he sort of like loses it and starts to doesn't know what to do. So he runs back up into the courtyard, and that's the night that the bomb falls and the bomb doesn't right. explode; it just hits the muddy courtyard. Um, and so, yeah. So sorry, keep going with the end of the movie. What you're saying? Yeah, and and which is by the way, just I I love the unexploded bomb. I and it looks exactly like the bomb from the end of um, Doctor Strange Love. You know, what's it, <laughs> Fat Man or something like that? Yeah, and I just yeah. I, the 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 visual of it in the middle of the courtyard is a really really strong one. It's a really really strong one. Um, um, uh, what was I saying? Yeah. So right. So like like the ghost of San- Santi basically says to Carlos, and then through Carlos to so the rest of the boys, like bring me Jacinto so I can you know finally rest or something like that. And you know, this is after after Jacinto has essentially destroyed the orphanage and murdered many of the lovely people, uh, including the doctor, including, uh, the caretaker whose name I don't remember. Uh, and also including his own fiance, uh, uh, who's a, also a caretaker, uh, in some respects. Um, and, and they're able to bring Jacinto. I did too. I did too. Yes. Um, they're able to bring him down there and they, and they stab him to death and they did, they dump him in the water tank. And then you see Santi, the ghost of Santi, I, I, I don't know, uh, suffocate him to death even further. But the way it works is like he clearly would have died even without Santi's involvement, the ghost's involvement. He so, would have he would have just bled. So so is the yeah. ghost really like there or really right. pertinent to the telling? Is that what you're trying to say? 
Exactly, exactly. So there's definitely a read on the film that is the ghost doesn't exist at all. Uh, yeah. You know, and it's just a bunch of boys locked up in the middle of the desert in a kind of orphanage slash boarding school. And of course they think about ghosts. Who wouldn't in that yeah. situation? Yeah, sure. Especially where a kid had gone missing. Um, right, right, right. So, okay, well, so I have two th- two thoughts in relation to that. And I w- I'm curious which one you want to tackle first. So yeah. I, w- I would love to talk about the ghost design and the yeah. pre- the, yes. pres- the presence of the ghost. Um, yes. And I would also love to talk about uh, severe, sudden moments of gore in Del Toro's movies. Um, oh, so that's a, that's a great one. Yeah. So I don't know. Which, do you want to put the ghost thing to rest first, maybe? Well, let's the put gore. the ghost thing to rest first, and and I think that it can it'll transition really nicely into into your really good uh, topic. I mean, yeah. I mean, these are the yeah. only two things that I truly thought like my only t- takes for the movie that I wrote down in my little notebook. So if you had somewhere else you wanted to go with the convo, please no, let no, me no. know. But, no, go for it. Yeah, um, give me your thoughts on the ghost, on the design. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is in some respects, the thing that Del Toro is most known for in his filmography yes. is design. Sure. I thought this was a miss. Um, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I don't mean to, to, I mean, if you liked it, this is, you know, I think the ghost, I mean, it was not corny. I didn't laugh. Um, do, you, do you know what I mean? Like it, <laughs> right, it wasn't right, like right. seeing. He shows a lot of the ghost. I think the first time you see the ghost in the window, it was genuinely spooky. I think uh-huh. the couple of times where you hear the whisper and the footsteps, and and then you're going to see the ghost, it is really spooky. But when he lifts the curtain on the ghost, it this. So I did a little research. This time period, we're kind of in right in the middle of peak J horror. Um, Interesting. So. You look at a movie like Ringu or the original The Grudge movie, which I forget um, what that one was called. Um, I think The Grudge is in the title, but um, those it it just seemed like this ghost design was very, very, very inspired by sure. J horror. And I, I mean, I can't even say that for sure because this movie was probably made in conjunction with a lot of these other movies, like this this late '90s, early 2000s time was when yeah. this was happening. And the ghost design, you know, it was very obvious. It's like sort of very white, very colorless with charcoal eyes and mm-hmm. um, kind of very like decaying skin. And then there's right. like a, a wispy quality to things. Um, in this case, the wispy quality was uh, was Santi's, like his head wound from hitting that pillar was just sort of wisping blood, which I thought was cool. But yeah. I just saw it, and I was like, "This is scarier in the the Japanese horror movies that I know." So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that has less to do with design, maybe, than it does with him. You know, his pacing and and how much of it he's willing to show. Um, right, right, revealing it. Yeah, yeah. But that, so that was my first thought. What did you think of the the ghost design and the ghost scenes? I completely agree. I agree with everything you just very eloquently said. Um, I wonder, like, so. This film, I mean, Santi is very clearly, for the most part, I think, maybe not every scene, but Santi is shot, uh, like, as a child. Like, there's an actual actor on the screen when you see him, for the most part. He's not CG. Um, But there are elements, there are heavy elements of CG with him, like the wispy corner of his forehead that is, you know, kind of bleeding of, of, like, a constant cloud of blood out into the air is obviously CG. 
Um, you then look at Pan's Labyrinth and you look at uh, the design there. You look at the Hellboy movies and he starts, Del Toro starts favoring, um, oh, what's the word? Like practical effects, you know, makeup, costumes, uh, like like anything that Doug Jones plays. I think that's the actor uh, who tends to be in a lot of the, the monster suits in Del Toro's films. I think he plays the, uh, mm. you know, in Pan's Labyrinth, he plays the guy with the eye, eyeball palms and and so forth. Um, so part of it is like this is a very small budget movie, um, interestingly produced by uh, Pedro Almodovar, who did uh, uh, Pain and Glory with Antonio Banderas and mm. Nelope Cruz this year. But um, I, this is a low budget movie and that was low budget CG. And um, I love your take on it, that this is a kind of... Uh, uh, either a happy coincidence or a result of J-horror, uh, like the J-horror stranglehold on the culture, on the horror culture. Um, but yeah, it didn't work for me either. It wasn't... He wasn't a scary ghost also. He did not behave, Santi, as a ghost did not behave in in interesting ghost scaryish ways, you know, sure, other than like, sure. break, like pushing over a pitcher of water or like disrupting the... The tools in the kitchen, I mean, those are very tried and true ghost things, and they are not scary anymore. Even in 2001, I would say they probably were not scary. So, so do, you, you, do you think that that, you, so what you're saying is that you think that's a product of, of pre-saturation and not of Del Toro-specific timing and choices? No, I, I don't know. I, I, um, I, I think that what you're saying is also uh, on the money, too. I, I, I guess we can't know. I just think that, like... To me, uh, as far as my tastes go, 99% of the time, I want practical effects. I don't want CG. Um, yeah, and, and I do think that there is a lot of, to my eye, practical effects on the other side of this debate, which is the gore that I mentioned. Yes, um, right. Um, but if for some reason, this ghost design, which to me, if he wants this to be a truly scary movie, he should spend a lot of time on this ghost design and on these right. scenes and not just the design on the pacing of the scenes and how you do the reveal and how you bring the sound in. Um, yes. Yeah, right. And, and so I, it just felt a little half baked in those moments. So I think that's going to contribute to my pretty low sheep rating later on. Uh, well, so, so on the topic of gore and the transition that I'll make is like, we do get gore in this movie, and I want you to talk about what scenes in particular you were thinking of. But like, yeah, with Santi and the you know the, the the gore, there is a flash of gore when his head connects with the pillar when he's still alive, sure. But then the blood that you know trails out in a wispy fashion from his forehead just looks like a little bit of schmutz that you would want to lick <laughs> yeah. your thumb and then rub off his face. So that's yeah, not particularly definitely. gory. But anyway, yeah, what did you have in mind? And and for sure, uh, if you want, bring it over to other Del Toro films too, because I I, I really love to hear what you think about that. Sure. Yeah, I um so I think Okay, so I thought about this a, a lot. And in scene the way that you said gory scenes, I don't even think it's a scene. What Del Toro does that is very jarring and very alarming is he you know violence is going to happen in a lot of these scenes. Um yeah. He does not cut away and he but he makes the mo moment happen fast so mm -hmm. um 
so some examples not in this movie that I wanted to bring up. There's the famous beer bottle bashing scene in Pan's Labyrinth, oh. um, which is one. It's just one of the most painful looking things I've ever seen it's, in a movie. I. It's just I. I. I just have to interrupt to say that I saw Pan's Labyrinth in theaters. On a first date when I was in high school, oh, and I had no idea, and it was also the last date. Woof, <laughs> so, woof. And, and that scene in particular, I just remember watching it and then glancing over at my date and thinking, like, she should have me arrested for bringing her to this movie. <laughs> well, you're very compassionate. Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway. Yeah, you try to be, you know. Um, so I, it's so funny that you say that cause I watched that with a high school girlfriend as well, but also with her, with her mother in the room. So we were, you know, watching it on like DVD or something. Um, so equally as uncomfortable, I would say. Um, yeah, I mean that scene obviously, but there's a modern example. Even if you look at the shape of water, which to me is not, not a horror movie at all. It's, you right. know, it's, it's his sort of homage to maybe what the thirties thought of as like a, a, as like a creature feature. A creature feature. Sure. Um, sure. But it's not a horror movie, but there is a moment of, of like, like unrelenting, like pure, like shudder, shuddery kind of moment. And it's when, so Michael Shannon's character, which I think is Mm -hmm. one of the best villains I've ever seen in the film, um, which, you know, I, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on Shape of Water, maybe off, off microphone, um, because that's out of the scope, but, um, I don't know that I thought shape of water was as good as everybody else thought it was um but michael shannon has his i forget what happens to his hand early oh gosh but it, that's it, right it spends the whole movie sort of like becoming more and more gangrenous and that's right and, and, and <laughs> that's right. Sort, sort of rotting slowly under this bandage and then at the very end of the movie when he's gonna when the creature eventually kills him which is a gory moment but the part that's gross that's visceral is when I forget who does it, but somebody like grabs his hand and their thumb like goes into his hand or something. Ugh. Something happens where there's like a puncture because his skin is so rotted and, and like in. Oh, yeah. gosh. You know, I can't I can't remember it. I've clearly blocked it out. I forget exactly what happened, but it's like really, really, really gross. Um, and, you know, there's like pus involved and it's, it's disgusting. And and so this movie, the two moments are. So the end of the movie, you're right. Like I don't think Santi really needed to be involved with the death because the the children who are locked in a room for a portion of the end of this movie, um, they s- grab a bunch of stakes, um, wooden stakes, you know. Right. And, hence right. The, you know. Yes. Um, and sort of like Lord of the Flies style, they 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 chisel the end of these stakes to very sharp points, and then they all grab them, and then they go corner. Jacinto in the basement and he just sees them with sticks so he's like what a joke and then Jaime who's like around the corner like runs in from the side and stabs like a good four or five inches of the stake up into his armpit that's right that's right I remember that very well already uncomfortable and so then he rips it rips it out and then obviously it's disgusting right and then and then so he falls to the ground because he's like bleeding and that's gotta hurt um and then they stab him in like the forearm, um, and that's mm-hmm. the moment. I mean, these are like these are like one to two inch stakes in diameter, and right. you know they're like five feet long. And they stab him in the forearm, and and it goes right into the forearm. And then there's just a close up 
like very clean shot of it just going into his arm and digging around. And <laughs> it's just, there's this thing and, and, and it's like, you know, we're on a horror podcast. So I think people, there are some people listening to these kinds of podcasts who they look for this kind of, exactly um, right. Yeah. This kind of extremity. But I think del Toro in particular puts no flourish on it at all. He doesn't put any yeah. sort of like, cut away i mean the thing that comes to mind is is that scene in misery where he hobbles where she hobbles him <laughs> where she hobbles him yeah the uh, hobbling they yeah. show like a split second of it and then cut away del toro stays for the extra two seconds on right on that he's so confident in his practical effects in these moments and, right. and more right. specifically i think he's so fascinated with what happens to the human body he absolutely is i think that's very true um and it's so very I, true i I think yeah. To, no, keep going. Yeah. So, so I I don't know like the the I don't know what the the sort of like significance of this is. Like this movie is clearly interested in the concept of what happens to the body in trauma because there's the devil's backbone thing, the birth defects thing. Um, there the whole premise is set around like what is a ghost. Um, so right, I, right. You, you know, it, like the movie almost seems to be about that in some ways. Um. I don't think Pan's Labyrinth or Shape of Water is about that, but um, it, it this is a recurring thing in all of his movies. And so I w it, it, the thing is you're just never expecting it because this movie spends right. the whole time being a little violent, but not really that much. So I mean, it doesn't take it to that level, right? Yeah, so I don't know. That was something I noticed, and I was curious what your thoughts are on, I don't know, everything that I just sort of word vomited at you. <laughs> um well if it was vomit it was it was well well vomited it was um, it was well sprayed <laughs> well <laughs> yeah it was a beautiful projectile um well I, I i he absolutely is del toro absolutely is fascinated with the body uh with what comes out of the body and the way the body reacts when certain things are put into it i mean pan's labyrinth takes uh, everything you've just said and amplifies it in so many ways. Obviously, the bottle face bashing thing in Pan's Labyrinth, but also don't forget the general sewing his uh, his lips back together, his cheek back together. There's a torture scene, um, and then on the topic mm, of yeah. turning away and, and the sewing that when he's sewing his face back together in the mirror, you watch that whole damn thing. Like he shows you the entire operation, um, and as far as cutting away goes. Um, with the hobbling, I mean, I think the direct, the most direct and analog uh, to the hobbling scene in Pan's Labyrinth, for instance, is the amputation scene when the doctor character, and there's another doctor character who is pure of heart, just like in Devil's Backbone, when he goes out to the sort of cell of revolutionary fighters, the guerrilla fighters that are in the forest surrounding the encampment, uh, he has to amputate one of the soldier's legs and... There's a whole build up to it, and you are getting sweaty in your seat, and you are nervous that it that you're gonna see it because you're thinking about what happens when a saw goes into human flesh above the knee or below the knee or whenever wherever it is. And instead of pulling away when the doctor uses the saw and enters this poor guy's leg, uh, right instead of instead of pulling away right before it, he pulls away right after. Uh, the penetration, uh, the saw blades penetration. And so you think maybe you're going to be spared. Maybe you keep your eyes on the screen thinking, oh, at worst you'll have a sound effect. But no, you see the blade enter the skin. Um, and that is very much a del Toro-ism. And um, I, I, think it's, I think you're right to, uh, to bring it up. 
Um, it's, it's so interesting that you point out the, that saw moment in Pan's Labyrinth because it sounds like he's sort of co-opting that expectation to pull you out of what's actually going to yes. happen. That's, I think that's true. So yeah. interesting, yeah. So you know, it's so funny too to me because there are horror movie watchers, and if we have if we have say we have fifty listeners, then there's going to be a number of them who are these kind of horror viewers. But people who do, like you said, they, you know, they seek out that sort of gore, that that representation of gore in films. I'm the exact opposite of that person. Uh, I stay as far away from it as I possibly can. I get easily nauseated um, by this sort of thing. Uh, I definitely tilt my head away if I think something horrible is about to happen, like an amputation. Um, but it's funny to me because when I see it in movies like this, when I see these bursts of aggressive, explicit, almost like prismatic, vivid gore like Del Toro does, I think that they're done well generally. Like I um, I, I understand what he's doing and why he's doing it and I think that it's effective. I think that it 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 can elevate a film. Uh, it can make a point. In Pan's Labyrinth mm. in particular, because I think it does it more effectively in Pan's Labyrinth than I do in Devil's Backbone, but in Pan's Labyrinth in particular, seeing that gore is a reminder that this is the real world. And whether or not the metaphysical supernatural shit is actually real, it's irrelevant because what's going on around it is the real world. And so watching an amputation in the forest, it's like, okay, I, you know, this, this, this makes the film resonate more deeply with me. It's more evocative. Um, sure. it, it's interesting that you say that because I think based on what you were saying about our conversations about what's the real world, a.k.a. the Spanish-American, yeah. uh, the Spanish Civil War, and what is fake, a.k.a. Santi, we aren't sure if he's real or if he right. had any part. Um, I think that that gore, if we're suggesting that Santi is not real, the gore is what kills Jacinto, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So yeah, it's like true. that That moment is also bringing That's you right. back to like, wait a minute, wait. So I thought they were bringing him down to this basement so that Santi could do some magic ghost yes, demon exactly. shit on him, but he didn't. They just brought <laughs> stakes to him and, and this <laughs> is what happened. Him, right. Yeah, yeah. So I think... That's interesting that, I mean, I agree, it's probably a little bit more poignant in Pan's Labyrinth, but now that you mention it, that seems to be what he was trying to do here, too. Right, right, right. I think so. I think so. So I I, I think this is probably a nice time to uh, maybe transition into our our kind of critical wrap-up of the film. Um, And I think the transition point is, is actual... Fear is your is your uh, fear factor uh, copyright trademark. Um, like <laughs> this, like my my experience of this movie, and I, I want to let you talk first, but but I, I guess I'll just open it with saying like, does this movie even pretend to be a horror movie? It, does it is it is it successful as a horror movie, or is it or is it successful as a as a kind of thriller, suspenseful drama, or whatever you'd call it, a melodrama even at points? That has elements of horror. Like, how do you how do you even categorize this film? If you so, have to, I mean, you call something the devil's backbone, and and the <laughs> I think the cover art has a picture of you know Santi and his ghostly makeup. Um, mm-hmm. You can't help but be swayed in that direction, um, right? I don't think I don't think this is a, a very effective horror movie for for scare factor. Um, 
<clears throat> I would say the the one point on that that I think sums it up perfectly for me is there's a quote at the beginning of the movie that I wrote down. It's the first thing I wrote down in my notebook, and I was excited oh. that I thought this movie was going to be real spooky because of this, and I, I was looking for a payoff that never came. So when Where? Carlos first gets there and he's talking to... I forget the little blondish kid's name, but then there's the kid who doesn't talk named Owl, um, mm-hmm. which yes, I, right. I love that little duo, by the way. Um, yeah. So, but they, the guy, the blonde kid, basically, he says, "Hi, I'm so and so," and oh, this is Owl. He doesn't speak, but he sure sees a lot. Um, <laughs> so, yes. So that wasn't paid off to me at all. Um, I think. I think I, I don't really know. Like when I heard that line, I was like, "Shit, this is going to be spooky because we're going right. to start to be toying with the idea of seeing things." But are you seeing things? Um, and it just wasn't paid off. So um, I'm gonna. I mean, if you're asking for out of five, what my sheep are? Um, I'm asking. Yeah, I'm gonna give this like a zero point five sheep. It had a little bit of maybe a one. Let me let me give it a one. I'm gonna give it a one out of five sheep because there were some moments, like especially when you know he's behind the curtain next to the bed and all that um but i you know i thought it could be way scarier than it was and i I just don't think it delivered sure 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 yeah yeah i i'll i i i agree with you um it's funny that you brought up that line about owl i uh did not remember that line and you're absolutely right it feels like a a false promise it's a bit like uh it's a gun that never winds up going off. Uh, yeah, what the hell does this kid see? You know, you, you never learn. And um, why doesn't he speak? Like this is, I don't know. Right, right. Is this just like a weird, like, um, like the big, like this movie at times it reminded me of The Sandlot. You know, it's like a bunch of kids, and yeah, yeah. the only way you can differentiate between them is like, oh, well, that kid has glasses, and that kid doesn't talk, <laughs> but he sees a lot. You it's know, the first time he's gonna speak, he's gonna say forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Right, right. <laughs> um, I, I'm with you. I, I also echo your one sheep rating. Uh, there were some moments that that were that were kind of you know, they were titillating. That were they were atmospherically creepy, but but nothing. I don't remember any jumps. You know, I don't remember feeling uncomfortable. I I shut the movie off, and the only images that lingered in my mind were not the scary images. They were, you know, some of the more compelling uh, visuals, like the you know the undetonated bomb. You know, that was in my head, or like the really. Lo- I thought I really really liked the uh, the setting of the the you know the water tank basement room. I liked that. It reminded me of. Uh, I'm almost ashamed to. I'm almost embarrassed to admit it, but it reminded me of a. Uh, there's a Harry Potter movie that takes place in a similar, where there's a scene in a Harry Potter movie that takes place in a similar setting. I, you know, it's funny. I I don't even remember which one it was, but I feel like I'm sure yeah. Voldemort was involved. Uh, exactly. Anyway, um, <laughs> well, the tank was also very Shape of Water esque. It had a lot yes. of. He is fascinated with these sort of stagnant, discolored pools of water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So how about uh, how about the overall rating? How about your uh, your pentagrams? Yeah, uh, I'm gonna give this a. Uh, it's right down the middle for me. I'm gonna give it a two and a half stars. Oh, interesting. That's a that's a curveball to me because you um, at the beginning of the movie you or at the beginning of our podcast you uh, you didn't hesitate to uh, to say that you'd recommend it, but a two and a half stars is a. Uh, I mean, what is that? That's a C plus essentially, right? Or yeah. A, well, no, 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 no. Because like, I think it's weird that we do our grading scales out of 100 and but like you fail if you get a 64 that doesn't make any sense at all um (laughs) i think like i think 
it's right down the middle. I, I, I don't know. I really enjoyed the movie kind of despite what I thought it should be. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, it did not, you know, pay off enough for me to, for me to give it like a really high quality rating, but I enjoyed myself. It was entertaining and it was a little spooky. I thought there were some poignant moments. Um, but yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. What's your rating? Uh, I, I, I I'm frankly I'm scandalized because I this whole conversation I had the sense that you liked the movie better than I or more than I did but I I uh, I've I've wound up giving it three stars um, I um which I guess is not all that dissimilar from two and a half stars but I, I liked it a little bit more be, than you were expecting me to do like what three and a half or something yeah I don't know we were talking about it at least three three and a half yeah sure I mean you know for me I I. Uh, I my I enjoyed the movie. I, I didn't I wasn't particularly impressed with it, but I enjoyed it as a fan of Del Toro and as a huge fan of Pan's Labyrinth, which to me is his his masterpiece. Um I really like I mean I always, you know, as a movie fan I get a I get a huge kick out of watching, you know, the precursor films uh that find a director finding uh their voice. Um you know, Del Toro he, he might not be an auteur. I mean maybe he is in some respects you know he does have a a, a pretty a pretty uh, personalized style a recognizable I, style i think we're going to at a future episode need to get into what you personally consider as the criteria for becoming an auteur i think it can be a very pretentious uh status to give someone um but i personally think that del toro is a great example of an auteur I think mm-hmm, you're mm-hmm. sort of implying because his singular vision is sometimes the product of a lot of people. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think to say an auteur is an auteur, you would have to say it's their sing- singular vision and they do a lot of the execution and their fingerprints sure. are on so many parts of the execution. Whereas Del Toro, you know, he has to have a lot of a special effects teams. He has to have a lot of, um, you know, good performances in his lead roles, that kind of thing. Um, but I think he's he is an auteur, and frankly, probably more than you would consider Ari Oster or, uh, you know, Eggers or Baumbach. Oh, or, undeniable. Or, I mean, those are I, at the very least there there is there is a, there has to be a minimum amount of films uh, from which to draw from. I mean, those yeah. those are filmmakers who have a couple of films under their belt. Uh, no, Del Toro has a dozen and uh, and you can easily make an argument one way or the other about it but those are those are those other filmmakers are as yet very much unproven people um yeah i um i don't know i i liked them ultimately I, I liked the movie um and i thought it was it was a really i got a kick out of watching it and seeing you know where he came from and where he was going to go as a filmmaker uh so yeah i said one three stars got it well great i think great uh are you? By the way, are you keeping track of these ratings? I think we should be keeping track of them somewhere. I am. I have. I have all mine. I don't have yours. I have all mine. Shit. All right. Well, maybe I'll go back <laughs> to the end of all our podcasts and I'll send you an email with all my star ratings because I'd love to get an average out there for us. That's a great idea. Um. Cool. Okay. All right. Well, uh, this concludes um, another episode of Fear and There. Um, Thanks for listening, folks, and um, we're well. We're really excited to have you back next time, whenever and whatever that that might be. <laughs> I think it'll be real soon, buddy. I, th- I think it will too. I think it will too. Jay, I hope you had a really nice time tonight. I certainly did. 
Yeah, I had a great time, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for hosting. Really well done. And uh, I thought you brought a nice, um, I don't know, je ne sais quoi. What is the Spanish version of je ne sais quoi? <laughs> I don't know, but I- I'm glad to hear you say that because I... Uh... I, I wanted I wanted to know what your notes were about it. I don't. <laughs> I'm not going to yeah. deliver my notes on air, but there are none. No notes. <laughs> no, no. It's great, great. You weren't even listening. Actually, you were really you were been doing something else this whole time. All right. Okay, my friend. Uh, until next time. Pros bring something extra to every job. Now at the Home Depot, they also get something extra. Pro Extra, our free loyalty program built for pros just like you. Members earn perks with every dollar spent, like Pro Extra dollars, a tool rental credit, and more. New members get $20 off their next in-store purchase of $200 or more just for signing up. Learn more at homedepot.com slash pro extra. New year, more rewards, Pro Extra, only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.